Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Chip. His hands were behind his back. He leaned out of the truck and somehow shot at the guy. And the guy stepped back, chipped him out of the truck. I jumped in the truck, shut the passenger door. Then I reached over and locked it. And I heard about five or six gunshots. As far as the glove compartment, I remember that if you, if when you opened the latch, if you weren't careful, there was no catches to, to catch the the glove compartment as it opened. If you just opened the latch, it would fall all the way down and the contents would, would fall onto the floor. I'm John Torres and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. Hey, before we get started, I want to give a shout out to CBS 48 Hours who have generously shared their Chris White audio with me for use on this podcast. I've tried to get an interview with Chris, but he has refused. They also shared all the audio of Kim Halleck. Now, that's all public record, but the Brevard County Sheriff's Office wanted more than $900 for the audio recordings and other related media in this case, and so CBS graciously provided it to us. And as I stated earlier, I have made several efforts to reach Kim Halleck. However, emails, letters, and messages on social media have not been answered. I'll keep trying. Last episode, we heard Chip Flynn's girlfriend, Kim Halleck, give police the harrowing second-by-second account of how their late-night drive and visit to a secluded area of Holder Park turned into a terrifying robbery and abduction at gunpoint. Halleck said that, as the black assailant drove them from Holder Park to a deserted orange grove, she was able to shimmy her boyfriend's revolver to him. Chip Flynn's hands were tied behind his back with a shoelace, but after they got to the Orange Grove, somehow he was able to engage the black assailant in a shootout, allowing Kim to jump back into the pickup truck and escape. I know I keep emphasizing the race of the assailant. Why? Well, Kim did, as you recall in listening to her. Over and over, she repeated, the black guy, the black guy. Now, of course, if you're a 19-year-old girl and you've just been held at gunpoint and you get a chance to escape, it's no surprise that your instinct would be to lock yourself in the car and get the hell out of there, right? Even if it means leaving your boyfriend. Especially when you start to hear gunshots. And of course, you could understand a boyfriend or any significant other yelling to his or her partner to go, escape, save yourself. It's only natural for us to want our loved ones to be safe or to get to a safe location. But here's what's wonky about all of this. According to Kim Halleck, this exact scenario is something that, well, it's something they had spoken about and prepared for. Also earlier, you had indicated that uh, Chip had given you instructions if this situation uh, should ever occur. Can you you, uh, go into a little detail about what Chip told you? Yeah, we, we, we go out and we used to go out to the pits and sit up there. Where are they located? They're out off of 50 behind the highway patrol. Everybody comes out there. Mm-hmm. And when we go out there, he goes four-wheeling up and down the hills. Me and him, 
and I think his friend, his best friend, and his girlfriend, were always would talk about things like this, just you know. So, so we would know what to do. Mm-hmm. They were like trying to prepare us if anything ever did happen, because we always did a lot of wood traveling. At night. Not, not really at night. You know, but it doesn't matter if it's at night. A lot of times. Mm-hmm. And he just told me, where were we? I don't remember. One night when he told me, he said, if anybody, if I get out of the truck and anybody ever comes up to me with a gun, he goes, you jump in the driver's side and you take off. He goes, I don't care if they're shooting at me. He goes, you take off. He goes, I don't want you getting hurt. You can wave and you're fine. And I, I could have done that, but I didn't. I couldn't, no, I couldn't have done that at that time. But I did, I could have when I did. I got away. Okay. So I just took off because I didn't know if that black guy was coming to my door or the passenger door. He ran off in the woods, and I assumed he ran off in the woods because I sat there for about a minute before I took off because I was scared and I had to start the truck up and stuff first. In case you had a hard time following that, Kim Halleck says that Chip told her this. If anybody ever comes up with a gun jump into the driver's side and take off. When I first heard this little bit of audio, I literally sat there mouth agape. I mean, who does that, right? And then, just the thing you've been talking about, these what-ifs, actually happens? Anyway, Kim drives out of the Orange Grove and back out onto US-1. We can all imagine what she must be feeling, how terrified she must be. But then Kim makes a very curious decision that has been a major point of concern in this case for over 30 years. She turns the truck left onto US-1, where a hospital, Jess Parish Medical Center, was roughly a mile down the road. But instead of going to the hospital, or stopping at any number of open gas stations, or stopping at a payphone, or even a house to knock on the door and call for help, she drives west past her parents' home to Shady Oaks and starts banging on David Stroop's door. Remember David Stroop, he's Chip Flynn's buddy. Now it's one o'clock in the morning. Here's attorney Rob Parker expressing wonder at that choice. She goes, comes out through the uh, Orange Grove, passes these houses. Well, the hospital, it was like, I don't know, it was lit up like the space shuttle was going to take off. I mean, you couldn't drive, you see it from miles away. Um, She passed homes, didn't stop at any of these homes goes to this place and this guy that she had met like six months ago. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also surprised at that decision was David Stroop himself. Remember, he'd spent the evening watching basketball with Chip earlier. The thing is, he wasn't really friends with Kim at all. He knew her from when Chip was dating her. Next thing I know, I was awakened by someone banging on the side of my trailer at approximately one... 105, and it turned out to be Kim Halleck stating that Chip had gotten shot. Chip got shot, Chip got shot, I believe is, what, is how she's put it. David, now prior to this time, when's the last time you'd seen Kim? Um, it had been probably several weeks, I believe. 
And was there a reason that you hadn't seen her in such a long time? Well, Chip and her had been dating for uh, several months, but approximately two months before that, uh, I believe he broke up, broke it off with her, and uh, she, I didn't see her much anymore because Chip and I were very good friends, and and I knew her through Chip. Your, your association with Kim was basically through Chip's association with Kim, isn't it correct? Right. You were never dating Kim at any time. No. Right. You were never lovers or, or close personal friends. No. The only time you were with Kim, basically, was when you were with Chip. Yes. And you were at that time seeing uh, a girl named Stephanie, is that correct? Right. And she was your girlfriend. She was my girlfriend. And then throughout the time period. Right. Okay. Kim wasn't particularly close to Stephanie? No closer, no. And she would only see Stephanie when she was with you and Chip? Yes. After Chip and her broke up, did her and Stephanie hang out? No. No, they didn't. Did you and, did you and Kim Halleck? hang out together in any No. Okay. Did she call you on the telephone at your home? No. Did she call you at the office of her? No. Did she call you for any reason to talk about Chip or any other subject? No, sir. And so for 60 days prior, probably beginning around uh, February of 1989, you really had no contact with Kim and Alec until approximately 1, 10 a.m. on April 4th, 1989? Yes. Okay. And that was the first time you'd seen her in at least eight weeks or so. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, yes, best I can remember. And when she woke you up, she woke you up, you were sound asleep? Yes. She stated to you that Chip's been shot, Chip's been shot. Right. And did she ask to call the police? Um, no, we talked, I tried to find out exactly what she was talking about, but she was kind of upset, so I suggested she call 911. Hmm, another curiosity. Kim bangs on the door of someone she hasn't seen in a while and yells, Chip's been shot, Chip's been shot. And then Stroop has to tell her to call 911? Here she is recounting that scene to the police. Okay. Uh, how long were you at the trailer uh, prior to calling the, the sheriff's office and the ambulance? Well, I got to the trailer. I got him up. It took a couple minutes to get him up. I got in the trailer. I just said, I think Chip's been shot. Some black guy took it somewhere with him. I got away. I said, I got to call the police. I go, should I call the police? I got to call the police. Then I called the police. About, I'd say about five minutes when I got in the door. So now Kim goes from declaring Chip's been shot to saying she thinks Chip's been shot. It's a little strange that she also asks herself, should I, should I call police? I guess her and Chip never discussed what to do after her eventual escape in the event an assailant ever came at them with a gun and Chip was out of the truck. Oddness and strangeness aside, she eventually calls 911. The actual recording of the call went missing shortly after and so could not be used during the trial, which is an issue in of itself. However, it was transcribed and during the call, Kim tells the operator that, quote, somebody got shot. It's also during this call that Kim tells the operator about the first encounter with the black assailant at Halter Park. She tells the operator, quote, and the black guy went by once, and he just didn't say anything, end quote. Remember, she told police that the black guy warned them about a patrol car in the area. She later tells another officer that the guy tried selling them drugs and had to be run off. Anyway, after calling 911, Kim then calls her parents and Chip's parents. Now, Brevard Sheriff's Deputy Wade Walker arrives at David Stroop's trailer to talk to Kim, while Deputy Mark Rixey and Sergeant Diane Clark are dispatched to the scene of the crime. In his report, Walker states that Halleck was reluctant to go with him to the crime scene, 
But when Rixie and Clark could not locate it using her directions, Walker compelled her to go. Here is former Brevard County Sheriff's Sergeant Diane Clark. We really had very poor direction. So we waited for, we went out to JJ Road and we waited for uh, Deputy Walker to bring her, uh, bring her out there because, you know, there was just no way we could find anything without some guidance in very poor direction. Uh, she came out um, with Wade and we followed and then I, they, he pulled into a side dirt road. We pulled in behind, and uh, <clears throat> we were told that Chip was down there. That's all we knew was uh, in the groves. So we get out of our cars and uh, said, okay, so, uh, no, no, I'm not going down there. I'm not going down there. So we start walking along, and, uh, you know, the way that Orange Grove is, there's a like a U-shaped uh, dirt road around the perimeter of the Orange Grove for trucks and stuff, I guess. The area where the tires are is sand, fine sand. I can see perfect imprint of the tires, you know, the tire tracks, where a vehicle had just gone through. That was former Brevard County Sheriff's Deputy Mark Rixey. Now, Kim refused to go all the way down the dirt road to see where Chip was, and so Sergeant Clark ordered Deputy Walker to keep her in his car while she continued on foot with Deputy Rixey. They each held flashlights to light their way into the darkness, and sure enough, they found 22-year-old Charles Chip Flynn, and he was alive. Um, he was he was lying on the ground, not totally face down, but kind of on his side, more face down and, on, and up on his side. Uh, his hands were tied behind his back with a shoestring, shoelace, and he was moaning and and. Uh, we asked him his name, what happened to you, who did this, and all he would keep saying was, I'm hurt, just take me home, I just want to go home. He would never give us a name, he would never tell us what happened. Chip never asks if Kim is okay, if she made it to safety, or if the black assailant had hurt her or has been apprehended. In fact, he never mentions any black assailant, kidnapping or anything. Here again is Mark Rixey. So Diane and I walk up there and said, uh, are you okay? What, you know, what happened? Uh, get me out of here. Yeah. I'm like, what? What? Can you, can you tell us what happened? We, you know, we need, to, we need to know what's going on here. I just want to go home. But can you at least tell us which way the guy went? You know, for crying out loud, help us out here. What he looked like? Uh, take me home. I just want to go home. He never said, a black guy shot me, or be careful because there's a black guy with a gun, or is Kim okay because a black guy was here shooting at me? He said two things. Get me out of here. I want to go home. Nothing else. Which, again, now it's like she doesn't want to come down here. Not only that, but she never asks how he is. Is he okay? And then he doesn't give us anything. So we're in the middle of this orange grove in a pitch black night, thinking now that there's somebody, you know, who can scope us out in the woods there, a bad guy. Well, this guy's not doing us anything. Really, we didn't know if there was still a perpetrator in the area. Uh, we saw a weapon on the ground. We saw his jacket, shirt, um, and he had a chest, a second chest wound to the 
right side of his chest, and uh, he just wouldn't give us any information. So at that point, he I don't believe he felt he was in any great danger, but he was not about to tell us anything. He may not have known he was in any great danger, but Chip Flynn was slowly bleeding to death. The medical examiner would later testify during a deposition that there was a very good possibility that Chip Flynn would have survived the gunshot to his upper right chest area had he received timely medical attention. He said, and I quote, his death was due to blood loss. Sergeant Clark then brings her patrol car down to the scene in order to shine more light on the area. And that's when Chip Flynn suddenly stopped breathing. I went back to get my patrol car to bring it around to get some light on him. And um, pretty much he had stopped breathing by the time I got back there, by the time I got back there. And I did melt him up on him a couple of times until the ambulance arrived. And then he was taken to the hospital. And we secured the scene. And I had told Deputy Walker, do not let her talk to anybody, keep her in the car. Uh, well, and I had called for investigators and crime scene techs and everything that we needed. And uh, Mark and I preserved the scene until we got somebody out there to take it from us in the morning. Clark, who was medically trained, used a breathing mask and was able to revive Chip more than once and get his heart beating. He stopped breathing again just as the ambulance arrived, and medical personnel worked to revive him as he was being transported to the hospital where, sadly, he later died. The same hospital, by the way, that Kim had bypassed earlier in the night to drive to David's troop's trailer. And we're saying, like, where is the ambulance? You know, this is, this is insane. We need an ambulance, like, now. Uh, well, uh, since the complaining had given us bad directions from the start, the ambulance went to the wrong location to start. So they were delayed in getting to us because they had the wrong directions initially in the, in the file of the complaint. After trying to keep Chip alive, Clark and Rixie then worked to examine the crime scene and keep it secure until crime scene techs and homicide detectives made it out there. Now, both Clark and Rixie had spent time working in homicide, so they knew what to look for. And, well, what they observed at the crime scene just wasn't adding up for them. For starters, there was Kim's story about speeding away from there in Chip's pickup truck to get help. Both Clark and Rixie examined the tracks and... It, it did not look like somebody had you know, put the pedal to the metal to scream out of there. Uh, it, it, looked, it was just normal tire tracks. Again, we didn't know if there was a perpetrator in the area. So that, you know, we secured everything. Um, his not not giving us a name, um, if you look at the fact that it was no abnormal tire tracks out of there, there's just, there's something isn't right about how this case was closed. That's, that's just uh, my opinion from, from seeing what I saw out there, and again, it was many years ago, but I, I, were, I was in homicide for a couple of years, so I had, before I went back to patrol, so I had an understanding of what a crime scene, how you should deal with a crime scene, and what to be looking for. And as did Mark. He was very cognizant of, of what we were dealing with. And something just didn't, just didn't feel right to, to me, for sure, and obviously to him as well. Other than the tire tracks, which appeared normal and unhurried, there was a significant absence of footprints on the sandy ground that would have indicated a black assailant pulling Kim from the truck 
her running around the vehicle, and then the subsequent shootout. There was also the question of Chip's strange behavior. Now, you might argue that he was injured and he wasn't thinking right, but to officers, he seemed coherent and present, and he simply refused to tell them what happened. He also, again, never asked about Kim. In fact, Mark Rixey testified in his pre-court deposition that Chip said, get me out of here, I want to go home, at least eight times. Meanwhile, about 500 feet away, Kim never asks Deputy Wade Walker, or anyone else that night, about Chip's condition. She also chooses not to go to the hospital that night. Chip's gun was found on the ground five feet from where he was found lying nearly face down. There was a pool of blood there, and no blood elsewhere, so the evidence suggested to Clark and Rixey that he simply dropped right there in that same spot where he had been shot. But that would mean that he was not holding his revolver when he had been shot. They also noted a lack of casings to indicate a firefight had never really taken place, as Kim Halleck suggested. Another thing. You heard Clark mention earlier that Chip's shirt and jacket were laid out on the grass nearby, and they were matted down a bit. If Kim is telling the truth, then how Chip's clothes got there is one of the case's true mysteries. Here is defense attorney Rob Parker discussing that very issue. There was clothes that were found in a portion of that field close by the truck where some some, uh, um, bushes were patted down and pressed down the clothes were down and laid out it's almost like if you you and your girlfriend would go out there and to have sexual intercourse kim's family meets her out at the orange grove and like i said she doesn't go to the hospital instead she soon is transported to the brevard sheriff's office north precinct to tell homicide agents what happened detectives tom fair and scotty nyquist testified that Nyquist interviews Kim Halleck at around 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. The strange thing, boy, I keep saying that with this case, huh? The strange thing is that none of her statements are recorded until 8.20 that morning, almost four hours after her initial statement is given. Now, I asked Sergeant Diane Clark, formerly of Homicide, if that is standard procedure. I cannot imagine talking to her at three or four in the morning and not recording it. Uh, Apparently, they didn't feel she was a suspect of any sort. Um, I I personally feel that it should have been recorded. Uh, But I'm not going to get into a big lengthy discussion about this. I, I, I don't think it was done properly. In another part of Titusville, a former prosecutor turned defense attorney soon learns about the shooting and homicide on the pages of Florida Today newspaper. I read it in the paper, but nothing, nothing where I could go into any kind of detail. Um, just that there was a, a, a local homicide and then an orange grove in northern uh, yeah. Brevard County. And, you know, it's always terribly sad when something like that. He was a young kid, too. Yeah. so He had no idea at the time but soon the murder of Chip Flynn would become the major focus of Rob Parker's life for at least the next year. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast, Left to Die. If you can't tell somebody did that on Kim's behalf, you know, she had all this time. It's just a shame we didn't have a caller ID back then. Yeah, I wasn't even called in to testify in court, and I was one of the first people on the scene. 
which is highly unusual to not be called in. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on this case and web exclusives, please go to floridatoday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.